I want to know Christ in the messiness of my everyday living. And more than that, I long for and I passionately desire the power of the resurrection in my life that I might work for him. Amen? Amen! That's where we need to be. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning, our scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 3? And we're reading from about halfway through verse 4 to the end of verse 11. You'll find it on page 1828, 1828 of the Church Bible. If you have been worshiping with us over the last few weeks, you will know we have been steadily working our way through the New Testament book of Philippians. And today we're coming to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is looking back on his life, but also looking forward to where God is calling him. And he is writing from a Roman prison cell around the year AD 60. He is about to go on trial for his faith, and he's writing to the church at Philippi to encourage them to grow and mature in their own faith. And so we're breaking into chapter 3 at verse 4. And he writes, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering and becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. As most of you know, and you've heard me talk about this in the past, where my wife and I live, we live at the end of a cul-de-sac, and across the street from us lives two wee girls, and they are the cutest girls you can imagine. One is age six, and the other has just turned two. And Gray, whom I've mentioned in the past, uh, wrote me a note over the last 10 days, and she wrote me a note while I was in Egypt. And Brian Stewart and I were in Egypt for about 10 days, visiting, we visited around 24 congregations who are doing spectacular 
spectacular work in the midst of really tough circumstances, and you'll hear us talk about it in subsequent weeks. But Gray decided that I would be lonely in Egypt, and so she wrote me a note. And uh, she thought somehow it will get to me in Cairo. And so when I got home, Ruth gave it to me, and I opened it up, and it simply says, I love Dr. Gibbons, and a big heart, and it's spelled G-I-B-E-N-E, and I wouldn't change that spelling for anything, because it is just so precious. And of course, she was clearly thinking about me while I was away, and it was good to be home. But whenever I interact with Gray, and she comes over from time to time for story time after bath time some night, she puts on her onesies, and she comes with a blankie and a book, and she jumps up beside me on the chair, and Ruth makes a snack, and we read a book together, and then I take her home when it's time for bed. And of course, like any adult, I am fascinated uh, when chatting to six-year-olds and two-year-olds. It's just so endearing to find out what the world looks like through their eyes, and it's a lot of fun. But if a six-year-old behaves like a two-year-old, or a ten-year-old behaves like a five-year-old, you begin to get a little concerned, because natural growth and development and maturing is how it should be when you're a child. And in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi to encourage them to grow up in their faith, to mature and develop in the manner which God has called them to do. And so as we break into chapter 3, we come to verse 4, and Paul is writing about his background, his heritage, his upbringing. And he writes, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, and that's a rather old term we would write today, if anyone thinks he has confidence in and of himself, I have more. And he goes on to talk about his Jewish background. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is still a practice, of course, in Jewish homes today with young boys. He then goes on to say, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on to say, I was a Pharisee. As for religious zeal, I persecuted the church. And he did. When Paul first heard of the followers of Jesus, he had them arrested and put in jail. And then he said, as for religious righteousness, I was faultless and perfect. And from the outside, it looked as though I had it all together. In other words, Paul is writing about what it means to be raised in a religious home. And I imagine his folks reading to him or telling him Old Testament stories as they tucked him in at night. They would pray at family meals. He would go to the synagogue or the temple for all of the festivities and the holidays. And it was very much part and parcel of Paul's life growing up. But notice what he goes on to say. And he says in verse 7, but whatever was to my profit. In other words, my background, my heritage, my upbringing, my familiarity with the Old Testament, my years of study in order to be a Pharisee, he writes, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And notice what he then goes on to say. In fact, he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
what spectacular way to phrase his relationship with Christ. Look at it again. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And right there, Paul contrasts a religious upbringing and religious knowledge and religious observance with true, genuine, authentic relationship with Christ. And what he's saying is this, nothing can compare with a relationship with Christ. His infinite, inexhaustible love is defining who Paul is. If you asked him for his core values, he would point you to chapter 3. He would say that's what it means to know him, to be loved by him, to be transformed by him, and have that spectacular privilege of walking with him each day. That's what he's saying right there. But what we have discovered in the last few weeks is this. Just when you think Paul has said it all, just when you think he's got it all together, just when you think you understand what he's saying, he does what? He takes you to a deeper level all over again. And what he writes next is utterly surprising on the one hand and spectacular on the other notice what he says at verse 10. He goes on to talk about his relationship with Christ. He talks about what it means to know him, and then he says this, verse 10. Well, let me go back to verse, the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9, and he says, talking about Christ Jesus, for whose sake I have lost all things. He then says, I consider them rubbish. They really don't mean that much to me anymore because when you compare it to knowing Christ, they don't amount to much. And then he writes that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from religious observance, but that which is through faith in Christ. And he then adds the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith now, what does he mean? Well, let me unpack it because there's a lot in there, and I'll try and be brief because I want to spend a bulk of our time from verse 10. What he's saying is this, that religious observance, attendance at church, being raised in a home where you hear Bible stories, where family pray, he's saying they are a good thing. They're a great thing, but it's not enough to take you into a living, deep, abiding relationship with Christ. That comes by faith alone. Now, what does he mean by faith alone? Because one would naturally assume that if you come to church on a regular basis, you have faith. If you pray, you have faith. If you know your Bible, you have faith. But Paul is saying, uh-uh, it's not enough to know about God it's an entirely different matter to know him personally. That's the point he's making. And what he's saying here is this, that an individual comes to a living faith normally when they start coming under the sound of the gospel. 
and to hear of Christ's love and His grace, and to hear Him talking to them. Does that not sound a little strange? I'm not talking about audible voices, but what happens is this, that when you come to church on a Sunday morning, you start to discover that it becomes important to you. Then as you open up the Word of God and actually begin to engage with it, you hear that still small sense of conviction going on in your heart and soul, and He's drawing you and drawing you into a deeper relationship with Himself. And there comes a point of commitment when you get to the point and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I've heard about you all these years. I know a little of you, but I don't actually know you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. I give to you not just my life, but my heart and soul, and I trust you for all eternity. And that's what it means to be a Christian, to trust Him. In other words, it comes by faith faith when you fully, entirely trust Him for all the years to come and ask His forgiveness and His transforming grace. That's what Paul is talking about, and there's a world of a difference between religious observance and an intimate, deep, abiding relationship with Christ. That's what he's saying. And then he goes further, and notice verse 10, where he says those strange words, I want to know Christ. And as soon as you read them, you think, now, hold on a minute. There's something strange going on here. This is the apostle Paul. Paul had written more New Testament documents than anyone else. He's gone as far down the Christian road as it is possible to go, and yet he's saying, I want to know Christ. Is Paul writing from some kind of experience where he's drifted in recent weeks and months, and he's saying, I want to know Christ again? Is he writing from some substandard position that says, where is the blessedness I knew when first I knew the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? Is that what Paul is saying? No. What Paul is saying here is this, I want to know Christ in a fuller, deeper, richer way. He fully understands this, that there is so much more to his experience with the living God that he is not accessed yet. And so he is saying, I am not fully sanctified and therefore not fully satisfied. I want to know him more. I want to know him in that deeper, richer, fuller way. Does that describe you this morning? Is that who you are? Do you have that deep, passionate longing to know Him more? Do you realize there's areas in your life where you do not know Him the way you ought to, that there are deep and dark recesses in the heart and soul and mind that are not fully surrendered to Him? 
And here is the difficulty with this passage, and it's this, that we, for many of us, have been on the Christian road for so long that we know His love, and we've experienced His answer to prayer, and we know what it means to have our heart and mind and soul renewed, and we have settled for the status quo. And somehow, we are almost slipping into neutral and just gently moving forward, sailing along, doing fine. Thank you very much. And here's the bizarre thing. When it comes to complacency in the Christian life, it is so easy when you are in a good church, a place where people are warm and welcoming, a place that is a secure Christian home, a place that is life-giving and life-affirming, a place where worship defines who we are. We don't see it as an activity, but as a central part of our identity. And we may be in a Sunday school, or a men's group, or a ladies' Bible study, and we're watching people around us grow and develop, and we can sit back, and we can hide in a large church, and we just keep on going and never growing. Is that you this morning? Is that where you're at? Do you want to know Him? Do you understand the power and magnitude and significance of what Paul is saying? I want to know Christ. I want to know that inexhaustible love in every area of my life. I am not fully sanctified and will not be fully satisfied till I see Him at work in every area of my life, in the way I raise my children and in my neighborhood and in my place of work, and how I drive, and the programs I watch, and the things I surf the net on, I want to know Christ in every area of my life. And notice what he then adds. He says, I want to know Christ, and, and here it comes, the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. How often, over the last couple of years, have we looked at that cardinal principle for growth and maturity in the Christian life? Let me say it again. You'll be fed up hearing it, but it's worth saying again that the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead lives in us through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit the same moral and supernatural power lives in us. But here's the problem. We have settled for what is rather than what could be. Two weeks ago, a Sunday evening, I was leaving for Egypt the following morning. It was late at night, around 11.30, I was lying in bed trying to get to sleep. I'd been lying for an hour, and I was tossing and turning, and I was solving problems that don't exist. Do you ever do that late at night? You try dotting I's and crossing T's, and it's all running through your mind. And I got to the stage 
where I was being overwhelmed with temptation. And as I lay there, I remembered definitively the moment it happened, and I said, Lord, I cannot deal with this. I cannot cope with this anymore. I don't know how to resolve it. I don't know how to respond, and I'm taking the whole thing, and I'm handing it over to you, and you need to deal with it because I can't. In 90 seconds, I was fast asleep. I don't even remember it happening. I remember waking up the next morning. And what happened? The supernatural work of God was at work in my mind and heart and soul. And the power of the resurrection was a living reality right there. And here is the bad news. And I'm apologize to tell you this, but this is what happened. It was for me a last resort, not my first response, because I thought I can deal with this. I thought I knew best. I thought I knew what the perfect response was to a challenging situation. I could handle it, and it was only when I discovered that I couldn't deal with it, and handed it over to him, then the peace of Christ flowed through me, and I left it there and went off to sleep. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Look at it again. Not only the power of His resurrection, but to share in the fellowship of His suffering. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Is Paul saying this, that I want to be on the cross to share in His suffering? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He's using imagery and symbolism to say this, that out of the death of Christ, the church was birthed and people came to know Him and were exposed to His eternal, inexhaustible love. And Paul, like so many sins, are able to say for us, Christ is our beginning, Christ is our end, He is our destiny and our resource for living. And I want to be a part of the people of God because we have benefited from His suffering. And how have we benefited? Because the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead lives in us because of Pentecost. And Paul says, I want to know that, and I want to know it in all its fullness, and I want it to be a living reality for me. That's his great, great desire. That's Paul's magnificent obsession. Sometimes in the Christian life, we find ourselves tempted to believe. And on a Sunday morning, we will say, always, and we will stand upon this truth, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We believe them to be the Word of God. We believe there is nothing more powerful in heaven and on earth than the Word of God. But on Monday morning, and on Tuesday morning, and on Wednesday morning, somehow we take God's Word, and we hold it up here, and we say, I agree, 
It is the Word of God. I agree, that's how my life should be. And what we end up doing is marginalizing and minimizing the promises of God, and we say that should be and could be, but I live in the real world. And I live in a world of schedules and distractions and busyness and challenge. And yes, I agree on Sunday, but on Monday, I am going to live as if it doesn't matter. We may never articulate it that way, but in practice, that is what happens, and it becomes the last resort rather than the initial response. You see the point? And so we live the Christian life agreeing what could be and what should be, and we find ourselves in the difficult, busy, complex, distracting demands of taking children to soccer practice and music lessons and dental appointments and doctor's appointments, and we end up working 65 hours a week and running from one thing to another to another to another, and it gets further and further and further and further away because we get so caught up in the busyness and the scheduling and the distractions of our everyday life. So, my challenge for you this morning is this that as you get into a new week, as you begin a new day, you do not take this book, consider it could be and should be, and leave it there, but you take it, you put it front and center, and you live according to it, and your great cry for this week is this, I want to know Christ in the messiness of my everyday living. And more than that, I long for and I passionately desire the power of the resurrection in my life that I might work for Him. Amen? Amen! That's where we need to be. And here is why. Because when you grow and mature in your faith, and you become an adult, you no longer get to blame the circumstances and the busyness and the distractions and the scheduling, because adults take responsibility for their own growth and their own development and their own lives. And so this week, take the Scriptures, begin to apply them in the messiness of our lives with the great prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to know you more in a fuller, deeper, richer way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. And we thank you that day by day, not only do we know you, not only do we follow you, but you grant to us the inexhaustible resource of your Holy Spirit, the infinite manner of your love. Father, allow us, please, to live for you and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Phil Hargrove, and I'm the Ignite Worship Service Pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. And at Ignite, we like to do four things. We call them the four C's. One, we want to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Secondly, we want to build community. That means we connect with each other in the service as well as outside the service. Third, we want to celebrate what God is doing among us. And fourth, we want to be connectional, connecting the Bible to everyday life as we go live, work, play, and stay in this community. So come at 1045 on Sundays to experience at night and see what God is doing with and among us.